Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This is our final episode of Winter 2023. We will be working on the fall lineup over the spring and summer, and we'll be back in the fall. So join us for in-person screenings and um, on the podcast in September. I'm Marc Olivier, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by Professor Rob McFarland of BYU's German and Russian department. Professor McFarland writes about architectural history, film, the history of social democracy, and is a frequent contributor to our weekly lecture series, which happens during fall and winter semesters on Wednesdays at five. Welcome, Rob. Thank you. Um, so today we're going to talk about the 2006 Oscar-winning and many other international prizes-winning German film, The Lives of Others. In fact, um, fun fact, we just learned before recording this that there's an archived episode with this. So we're going to, if you're really hardcore, you can go back and listen to the OG Rob with Chip Oscarson interview and compare it to this one and see who wore it better. Okay, um, so there are some intertitles that set up the historical context to this film. It basically explains that it's 1984, East Berlin, Glasnost is nowhere in sight. The population of the GDR is kept under strict control, strict control by the Stasi, the East German secret police, which has 100,000 employees and 200,000 informers whose job it is to, quote, know everything. So would you like to elaborate on that, that context? It is amazing that the East German government, with the economy as bad as it was and the way they barely held things together for as long as they did for the 40 years that it was in existence, that they thought that the best use of their energy and their resources was to spy on their own people mm -hmm. and to have this, there's never been a domestic espionage um, effort that in the history of the world that equals this. There were so many people, this was not a huge country um, and hundreds of thousands of people working for the forced work in, for them um, to, to become uh, informants, kids informing on their parents and teachers on their students, if you can imagine such a thing. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the idea that the government wanted to know who was subversive, who might've been doubting and who might not be uh, totally gung ho and uh, therefore they would send people after them and they would wire apartments and they would read things that people did. It was tough to be an artist in this place because you can imagine the atmosphere that an artist has to live in where they're trying to say something meaningful and move things forward in an interesting way. Right. I mean, incredibly dangerous. Anything yeah. you say can and will be held against you, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Um, and the thought that there are 100,000 employees and 200,000 informers, that's just enormous. This you is know? a tiny country with not very many people. And they, get, they put all of this energy because they really feared what people thought. And that was the, the, the most terrible, like any totalitarian regime, they really hate the idea of that anybody else would think something else and say something else. Mm -hmm. I, um, I couldn't help but notice the uh, sort of prominent featuring foregrounding of this idea of machinery, right? Mm -hmm. The and the and the technology of the film. There are these shots that are um, 
you know, extreme close-ups of tape recorders, uh, you know, taking down information uh, as part of the surveillance program. There are typewriters all over the place, and the, and the typewriter is a major plot point as well. Um, there's even a quote attributed to, to Stalin where they call poets the engineers of the soul. What do you make of... Um, technology's role in this film. It's a fascinating role. If you compare this to another really important film that came out of, uh, of Germany 10 years earlier, uh, eight years earlier, um, Run Lola Run. Yes. Where they are, it's a time when people can take out a cell phone already. It's mm-hmm. uh, in you know, mid 1990s and they can make a call and figure out all the things that need to be done. And yet they, it, it's it's all about archaic technologies mm-hmm. where they're stepping into phone booths yep. and they're having to run and make connections rather than just using the technologies that's there. This, on the other hand, almost fetishizes the technologies that existed. This is part of a movement um, that will be called Ostalgie or Istalgia mm. um, in Germany, where after everything had disappeared so quickly from East Germany, there was a nostalgia, even though it was, there, there were horrific parts of it. The material culture was fun and and very very idiosyncratic, and for this film, they went to archives, they went to flea markets, they went all over the place and collected this old um, audio and uh, and video material all, all, or these these machines, these mm-hmm. strange old um, microphone and mixing machines and 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 uh, and spying machines and audio tra- you know, transcription machines and things like that so that they could de- di- dive deeply back into the material culture of the time, letting showing, again, how much money and how many resources they put on spent, they spent spying on their own yeah, citizens. Yeah, you know, I mean, typewriters have gone through a resurgence recently mm-hmm. of just like, oh, it's cool to have a typewriter and to eliminate all the old technology. I mean, the new technology focus yourself and have this typewriter. There's this whole discussion where they seem to know, the Stasi knows which writers have which brand of oh, typewriter. And, and who, has, who, have, who have typewriters from the West. And they say, well, this is a Colibri, um, you know, which is a, a brand. And we can tell that it does this. It was produced between this and this. And so we can, we can follow it down. You know, the, the, it was a science. The, in t- espionage is a great science. And the technological part of this espionage really runs right from the beginning when he, when mm-hmm. he's, when he's talking about, he, he puts in a reel to reel tape and plays a reel of him interrogating a, uh, a, a person who they want to oppress and try to get some information out of about somebody who escaped mm-hmm. and they're going to threaten to take his child away and whatever. And as he's doing it, he's saying, now, can you hear that? That's where I'm opening the jar where I'm going to put the, uh, the, the seat cover where he, you know, where he sweat into so that we, when we pull out the dogs, we'll be able to do this. And so he, and you see them recording and, mm-hmm. and, and all of this, the idea that somehow the whole process of oppression, the whole process of espionage is something that is very technological and very, they put, they put a lot of money into it and the money and, and time and effort they put into it is a huge theme in, in this film because it under, you understand the kind of people it creates. And yeah. when he has a crisis it's a crisis of an entire system, a, a, a deeply invested in system that has all sorts of money dumped into it, all sorts of really special um, uh, practices that they have to develop really carefully. Right. And so he's not just turning it because, oh, well, I guess he's a good guy and he thinks this others. He is leaving behind him 
a carefully constructed world that he has been that he is at the beating heart of. Well, and so do you think that the movie agrees with this quote about artists being engineers of the soul? No. That, well, this is the interesting thing. Um, mm-hmm. Because at the same time, he, he, there are two really important quotes. There's mm-hmm. the artists or the engineers of the soul. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the artist himself, Georg Dreimann, mm-hmm. um, is playing the, in this really pivotal shot. If there's one shot you should watch from this film, uh, he, he hears of, a, of the death of a friend of his, opens up a, a piece of music called The Ballad for a Good Human. Yes, Good right. Good. And mensch is an important mensch. word we've got yeah. to get back to. But um, so he, he plays that. And as he finishes playing it, Christophe Zeland is standing behind him and he says, uh, he quotes Lenin mm-hmm. and talking about Beethoven's Appassionata. And he said, if I were to listen to this too much, I would not be able to finish the revolution. Mm-hmm. And so there are quotes like the poet's, on one hand, the, 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 the state would love the idea, an ideology loves the idea that a poet is the mechanic, that is is, is the driving force, the engine. Right. Push but the it, right buttons, control the, society. Exactly. But it is not because an artist is a free radical. Mm. An artist will follow art, not necessarily the art that people want them to make. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, this figure, Christa Maria, I, the, the name Christa Maria kind of immediately makes you think, all right, this is some sort of divine that's being invoked through this character. Um, what, what do you think about that? And you mentioned to me, um, you know, before we started this, that you uh, uh, use this film at the beginning of a, we of do. a class. And right? this film has, has some major flaws and often a flaw in a film is something that makes it unwatchable, something that makes mm-hmm. you uh, impatient with it or cranky with it, or it makes you bored or, mm-hmm. or it annoys you. But the flaws in this film are the things that make us love it because hmm. it makes it into a lovable film. Mm-hmm. It's a film that we can easily understand easily. It, it's got, it's, it's a very emotional film, almost a little bit emotionally manipulative, but you know, with the music, the swelling music, the things yeah, uh, and the character. I mean, there is a lot of, there are some delicate characters that make big changes. And so it's not like that. Uh, in German, uh, traditionally, the, the, with the writings of Goethe, for example, Faust, mm-hmm. he has a character in it named Gretchen. And Gretchen is misused by Faust, and she becomes pregnant, goes crazy, ends up killing her child and dying, and uh, and therefore has been you know destroyed by his his endless need for power and for um and for finding out new things mm-hmm. and learning. But at the end she rises she as he goes up to heaven the figure of of Gretchen rises and takes him into heaven and says you know she he he's he's strived and this is the idea of the eternal feminine the thing that is will always forgive that will die for the man that will do all these things mm-hmm. and unfortunately there's a a little bit moment of that i mean some people love this kind of stuff, but as a feminist, it it's, feels it's a little bit problem. The idea that a woman is there to be a savior for the uh, human uh-huh. being, for, for all the other people, or especially for the dudes, right? The right. woman is the sacrifice tree who will put her husband through college and whatever, and then uh, you know suffer to do all these things, and then and then at the end of her life, be grateful that he got all the awards and she can stand behind him, right. tilt her head and smile. Um, this is uh, there's a little bit of this going on here, where she ends up sacrificing herself for him wearing a white robe and with her arms stretched out at the right end, in case we don't get the symbolism he picks her up and holds her in a pieta imagery like True. very very much like yep. michelangelo's pieta mm-hmm. where she, he's, he's holding the body of this woman who is an artist 
and you know was the great artist but couldn't overcome it and ended up sacrificing everything and thought that she destroyed him but she really didn't so there's this kind of christian imagery in it but it's like inverted so yeah. it, he's he's the virgin mary in this yes. pieta imagery and she's the christ figure she's the right? christ figure who's who's died for him mm-hmm. uh, this this white figure um the other flaw that i would say this is it's, it's such a grand film such a good film but it uses cinematic form in a way that is very, very easy to understand. It has an immediate effect on us. That's why I love to teach this film mm-hmm. at the beginning of our, uh, I teach with Chip Oscarson and Julie Allen. We often teach uh, German and Scandinavian 217 introduction to German and Scandinavian. Take cinema. it if you're a BYU it's student. Awesome. It's fun. We're often offering it this fall. Um, and it, it, it is a, a masterclass in how a film and the choices that you put on the screen can help this, the, the the audience make meaning. Mm-hmm. This is the big question we ask in that class. How does form make meaning? For example, mm-hmm. the use of color here in this, we have uh, three realms that we kind of uh, dwell in, three living spaces, I guess you could say, where the where Gerd Wiesler, the Stasi agent, Stasi stands for Staatssicherheit, the city um, uh, or the the the, the state. Uh, internal police, like mm-hmm. state state security officer, Stasi officer, Gerd Wiesler lives in this very antiseptic, overlit, um, white apartment that is very boring and has mm-hmm. no color. And it's this. And then when he moves into to spy on the artist, he's up in the in the attic, which is dark and blue mm-hmm. and gray. And he and uh, and Gerd Wiesler's face is lit by the instruments. And so he, he, he mm-hmm. looks sickly and unnatural as he's mm-hmm. up in this place. And he actually makes on the floor of the attic a map of the apartment yes. that is below him. So it's this simulacrum. It's this apartment that is not real, but he's listening in and trying to be, understand their lives and becomes involved in their lives, but is a sad, cold, dark, outcast simulacrum of the real life. Now, when we move into the artist's apartment, Georg Dreimann's mm-hmm. apartment, it is full of art and color. It's got greens and yellows and lots of warm natural mm-hmm. wood that uh, that just resonate. And so you're, it, it's very easy to show students, look, here are the colors. Yeah. How do you feel in this space? How do you feel in that space? It really does feel like an artist's space. You know, there's a piano, yes. there's music, there are books there. It feels, it feels well, warm. And, and, and uh, lighting sources that are, there, there are lots mm-hmm. of different lighting sources that make it feel very warm and like art, this is a place that should be made. And when uh, Gerd Wiesler, the, the Stasi officer, steals one of his books and takes it back to his apartment, suddenly it's filmed from above and it's on this deep orange couch and his apartment is tilted. The, the, the whole thing is tilted. So the mm-hmm. lines, you can see that as he reads this poem by Brecht mm-hmm. about a cloud above a pair of lovers uh-huh. and you can see that one of his eyes just glowing, the light kind of comes through and all of a sudden he's, he's not a gray human being. He's got these blue eyes. It's as if he comes to life through color. Yeah, and it's it's a very very interesting thing. In fact, nowhere in film, just about, are these two places juxtaposed as well as in an orbital shot that mm-hmm. happens in the center when we have the artist having heard about a friend's death playing mm-hmm. this piece called Sonata for a Good mm-hmm. Man, and he's playing it, and they start an orbital shot, and they do the same shot upstairs yeah. around him, and they have both of their faces, which unifies them as the same person, but one of them in this warm. Uh, tender apartment where all this art is happening the up upstairs in the cold spy apartment, but they're, they're in the same spot in the shot and the, the camera orbits around them. And at one point as he's playing a tear drops out of the Stasi agents, mm-hmm. this inscrutable face, like a stone yeah. face. He never has anything. The idea that 
he now the, the music that's going down in there has infected him in a way. Right. It's 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 the, and, and it's he, risen up from beneath. But he, you know, it's interesting because he almost feels like um, at once, you know, normally like I'm a horror guy, so I think somebody in the attic is going to be is creepy, right? And of course, he is in the sense that he's performing this surveillance, but he also is a sort of guardian a- angel figure. So you know, up there in the in this other sphere, listening in on on what's happening and ultimately intervening. I well, mean, this spoilers, is but. a really interesting thing because uh, horror movies are anti-humanistic. Uh-huh. Right, their idea that the human thing that keeps us human, helping each other. I think of of uh, twenty eight weeks. Uh-huh. At the end of it, somebody helps somebody who's infected with this mm-hmm. with this uh, zombie virus. They fly to France, and of course, turns into a zombie in the meantime and spreads it out, and it's going to destroy uh-huh. humanity because somebody <laughs> felt something good. Right. Horror is anti humanistic. It's about destroying the human. Uh-huh. Whereas this is an infection of another kind. It's humanism. Uh-huh. That comes seeping up, and every totalitarian system that says the system is more important than the human being, right? Everything that is the system that he's setting up there—that cold, dark, black, and white. You see the shadows that are up there in the in the in the the attic realm. It's always white on one side and dark on the other. Everything's black and white. Yeah, and these this gray area is seeping up through the the, the music and the things that he's reading, the poetry. It's the idea that these are real people. Mm-hmm. These are lovely people. And the life that they lead is not the life that the government wants them to lead, but it is a beautiful life. And theirs is the realm of truth and love. They have real relationships between themselves. And this human existence infects him until he understands this is good. And the thing I'm doing is evil. And he has that crisis that turns mm-hmm. him around against his own system as mm-hmm. he's playing in the middle of it. And, and it's it's the power of art. Yeah. Understand that he feels his humanity. He had, there's a scene mm-hmm. that happens in uh, Georg Wiesler's, uh, I'm sorry, Gerd Wiesler's apartment, the Stasi agent, where he invites a prostitute to come up mm-hmm. and the state provides them whatever. And it is the most loveless, transactional, embarrassing, cringy interaction mm-hmm. between the two of them in his blank apartment with nothing there. He eats rice and ketchup for dinner <laughs> and he invites this woman up and it is such a sad thing. He has it nothing is. in his life. And then when you compare that to the relationship that the artist, the, the actress, Christa Marie Zeland and Georg Dreimann have to each other, which is this beautiful, touching, problematic, real human relationship. And he realizes up there, I don't have love. And love is human. Love's a human. And, and art leads to love. And, and the thing that brought these two great artists together was, was love, but also love of art. Right. And, you know, he... He ultimately is another sacrificial figure. I mean, I, I think of um, what happens with his career and sort of the um, what happens after the wall falls. And his, his life just seems consistently sad. Is, is that your read on it? One, you know, He was at the top of his game when he was this go for it mm-hmm. person who was destroying people's lives and, and, and investigating. But once he finds humanity and truth and love he doesn't survive well after that he's kicks around from the at these at these small jobs and whatever he at the end no spoilers but he finds out that it was all worth it yeah for a moment from but he still has to pay more money than he has to to find out that it was (laughs) Um, true and so but the the interesting thing there's a word that comes up over and over again here the the the, um the music that Mm -hmm. georg dreimann plays when Mm -hmm. he hears of his friend's death it's called Ballade für die, einen guten Menschen, a ballad for a good 
human or a, a, a sonnet for a good a sonnet for a good human. Mm-hmm. So At another part, um, Georg Wiesler is sitting across from Costa uh, Marie Zealand and not letting her know that he's a Stasi officer, but is mm-hmm. talking to her and is trying to talk her out of running off with the minister and and betraying right. her art, her artistry so that she can you know uh, get out of trouble with the state. Mm-hmm. He uh, he doesn't want her to do that. And he convinces her. She says, look, you're a great artist. You don't have to give in to these people. You should do your... And she turns to him and says, you are a good man. You're a guta mensch. And this is an interesting word. In the, in, uh, in the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. this is something that Kant and others bring up. They bring up the idea of a mensch as being... Which just means man or human. Mm-hmm. But it becomes something different in the Enlightenment. It says it, you, a mensch is somebody that embodies Kant's categorical imperative. It, you're a mensch if... If everybody else lived like you, the world would be a perfect place. Mm. And so a mensch, still in Yiddish, he's such a mensch, means yeah. he's a great human being, somebody who loves and cares for other people, is kind and is accepting and welcoming. And so it changes the idea from just being a human of some kind to being this kind of human, a human who is caring and loving, Christ-like, uh, giving and thoughtful. And uh, to the even if it means that all of your ideologies need to be left behind. Right. Um, well, this makes me think of uh, Roger Ebert's uh, ca- uh, characterization of films as an empathy generating machine. Mm-hmm. And I really do think that people who watch this film will feel like they want to be better people. Um, at least that's my hope. Oh, what I do you hope think? that as all of us have things that we're a little bit ideological about ideas that we keep and we don't care what anybody thinks. That's the way it's going to be. And this is the way it has to be. And we're willing to sacrifice people and friends because of it, because we want to be right. Mm-hmm. This film shows that art will often mess that up and re- bring us back to a place where we say, you know what? I need to let go of some things because the people in my life are the most important things. I think this is what Christ did. He comes in there. The Pharisees are always right and mm-hmm. left saying, no, no, you're doing this wrong. You're supposed to be doing this. Every time he chooses the human being. In the Old Testament, we read about the people who try to reach and steady the ark and touch the sacred mm-hmm. and they, they are mm-hmm. all consumed by fire or whatever. Right. Whereas the anti-story to that is, of course, Christ walking through the multitude and the woman reaching forth, the woman with an issue of blood mm-hmm. and touching his, uh, his garment as he's walking by, touching his robe and having holiness leave him. And she's not destroyed. In fact, he stops and turns to her. And makes it all about her and not the appointment he needs to go to and the people around him. It's all about her. It's replacing this institutional, ideological idea of sacredness with something that is very, very personal. And that is what great art does. It makes us have to rethink everything that we know. Agreed. That's a great note to end on. But... We're going to move on to the lighter portion of this. And I'm going to ask you a few rapid-fire questions to close out. Name a movie that you're supposed to like, but don't. I teach for global women's studies. I teach the gender and cinema. Mm -hmm. It's called the gendered camera, women and world cinema. I love this class. I love women's cinema. I should love the cinema of uh, Susanna Bia, the Danish filmmaker um, who did, uh, you know, in a a better world after the wedding brothers. I cannot stand her films, (laughs) any of them. Okay. That's a good one. Um, What's your favorite movie snack? My favorite movie snack is red vines because I'm a nervous eater Uh and red vines. You have to chew on and work on and it gets out that stress. I love red vines and not Twizzlers. 
not Twizzlers. Wait, are red vines the ones that you can use as a straw? Exactly. <laughs> okay. It makes them even harder to eat if it's a cold drink. Yes, it's good. Uh, what's your favorite place to sit in a theater? My favorite place to sit in a theater is far away from everybody else. I don't want anybody else eating popcorn behind me. I want to bunch them. Reserve seats are a blessing to us all um, where you can see and hope that you're alone. German language film. This is our last question. German language film that everyone should see. Oh, there are so many because uh, not right now. They're, they're, they're going through a slump right now. Um, German language film that everybody should see. You should go watch Run, Lola, Run. Run, Lola, Run is... You won't regret it. Even for beginners, even for people who, who don't know that much about film... It is such a delightful film. And, and it's short. It's short. <laughs> you will not get bored. And it's it's really entertaining. Uh, my favorite film of all times is Wings of Desire. Mm. That's a hard one. That's a, that's a hard one to get your head around. But I, beautiful. I think it is just one of the most beautiful films ever. I, I'm, I will stop now because... I, I can't, I, I won't stop talking about German films. <laughs> okay. The well, Lives of Others. This is a great film. I yes. love it. Yes. Thank you so much, Rob, for um, joining us. And um, thank you, listeners, for joining us today on From the Booth. This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our sound engineer, Hayden Underwood, and Johnny Stallings, who composed our podcast soundtrack. We also thank Doug Weatherford, who has finished his three-year term as IC co-director. He's been a pleasure to work with. You will no doubt hear from him again, however, in future lectures at IC and probably as a podcast guest. So until September, you can look for us on Instagram at BYU underscore IC or on our website, ic.byu.edu. In the meantime, keep seeing great international movies.